This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. Cost of living pressures are dominating the federal election campaign as food and fuel prices surge. But medical costs are spiralling too. So can anything be done to tackle that? And overturning half a century of settled law. Could abortions soon become illegal across much of the United States? I think at the very least, there will be certain states where abortions are illegal. You know, I think there will be a lot of lawsuits challenging things, but no doubt there will be a woman somewhere who dies from a botched abortion and another who's forced to give birth against her will because of this decision. As expected this week, the Reserve Bank lifted interest rates, the first rate rise in more than a decade. It's gone up, Chris. It's gone up. Plus 0.25% today, so that is an enormous uh, move, higher than we were expecting. So Mortgage holders are fretting, the big banks quickly passed on the rate rise for home loans, and several more rises are expected in the months ahead. I'm 100% at risk of having to sell the property, and that would, like, kill me. I either need to find a second source of income or, yeah, it's something I'm really scared to actually think about. It comes right in the middle of the election campaign. Do you think the government bears some responsibility for this? Yes, I do. Has your government just lost this election? Of course not. The Reserve Bank says it'll be mid-2024 before inflation is brought under control. It's a similar story around the globe. War in Europe on top of pandemic disruptions are pushing oil and food prices up. The sharp increase in inflation has raised the prospect of an economic phenomenon not seen since the 1970s and early 80s. It's called stagflation. So are we headed there? And how soon can we expect more rate rises? Well, Sarah Hunter is a senior economist and partner at KPMG. With this particular rise, this is obviously the start of the process of normalising uh, the cash rate through the economy and then normalising all of the other borrowing rates that are related to that. So mortgage rates for households, some of the business lending rates will come through as well. Um, and it's just really the start of a process. So the RBA very much highlighting that the economy is performing really strongly, very low unemployment rate right now. We've got inflationary pressures that we got in the data last week for CPI, but also reports of wages pressures building and the RBI uh, really focusing on that. And so um, it's not appropriate now for uh, emergency settings to be in place uh, around interest rates. And so this is the first step, but it's just the first step of a few steps going forward to normalise interest rates and take them back up to where they were and and possibly beyond pre-COVID. Could or should the Reserve Bank have gone further, lifted rates by more or gone earlier indeed? The board will be responding to the information, the data and the outlook as they see it. So they should be um, seeing all of the numbers. Uh, They get the information from their liaison program. So this is where they they actually go out and talk to businesses throughout the economy and ask them what's happening and what the decisions they're making around wages and prices and things like that. Uh, And this is their response to it. So it's certainly uh, the data was pointing in the direction of the economy performing strongly and of us getting very close to needing, if you like, uh, a rate rise in in terms of not needing the emergency supports. But they they could have gone earlier. Uh, They obviously chose not to, but they're very strong signal now that 
we've got more to come and uh, and that's what we should all be planning on. And yet, mm. you know, beyond the stimulus link to the pandemic that the government pumped out, the government's still putting money into an already inflated economy. There's tax cuts promised for low to middle income earners. There's $250 cash handouts to people for the cost of living. There's the fuel excise cut. Isn't that working in the opposite direction to the RBA's na- aims? First types of policies are interesting. The, the $250 payments, particularly to those households that are on the very lowest of incomes, so might be on social security payments or on uh, very low wage income, and, and some of those will be getting that increase in the lower middle income tax offset. For that particular group, um, a lot of the inflation that we're experiencing right now, it, it's not just a domestic story. It's obviously also an international story around commodity prices of so food and fuel in particular. Um, a lot of that inflation really hits those households hardest because they have to spend a larger proportion of their income on those essential items um, and less on the discretionary items where we're not seeing as much inflation at the moment. So um, in terms of um, helping that particular group through, their payments may not have adjusted up, their wages may not have moved up despite the price moves, then that can be helpful. But the the broader stimulus uh, in terms of supports for households, either through those income tax or through the fuel duty cuts, yes, it, it certainly will be adding to some of the inflationary pressures. It, it increases demand in the economy and, and demand is running quite hot. And, and for the RBA right now, what they're trying to manage is a bit of a slowdown in growth momentum. They don't want the economy to keep on running really hot. They want to cool things down a bit, get inflation back into target, and, and that's obviously their mandate. Now, a couple of economists have said to me that they're worried about the potential for stagflation in Australia. This word is kind of just sneaking around in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, we experienced it in Australia in the 80s. Parts of Europe have seemed to have fallen into what's called stagflation. Um, can you tell us what it is and what happens to countries that are in stagflation? So it's it's a, it's a period of time where economies will experience uh, relatively high rates of inflation, but relatively slow rates of growth. And so the stag is from stagnating. That's the growth piece where the economy is not expanding very much and the inflation coming obviously from inflation and that's the higher inflation piece. In terms of the, the risk of Australia slipping into this, it, it's certainly true that at the moment we've got a lot of shocks that are coming through, particularly internationally, which are, are challenging because they are effectively uh, reducing our supply side capacity. Also, we've got you know, Ukraine in terms of the conflict there and Russian being able to sell commodities into the global market. Both of those are, are impaired. The, their ability to do that has been significantly reduced. So the world economy is having to get used to there being less access to wood, to, to food uh, from Ukraine, to oil, natural gas, all of these other commodities. Um, at the same time, we've also got what's going on in China in terms of those lockdowns and the disruption to manufacturing and supply chains. Again, it's reducing our access to those products. That's reducing our capacity um, and generating these inflationary pressures. So some of what's happening is going to result in slower growth um, and higher inflation, which sounds stagflationary. What's going to be really interesting over the next uh, few years, it's going to take a while to unwind. It's not going to be done within the next couple of months is how do those trends unwind? What does happen around that the conflict in Europe? How does China deal with zero COVID and, and how does that transition evolve and unfold? Those I think are going to be really important trends for us in, in terms of identifying whether or not we're in a stagflation environment and if we are, uh, what we might be able to do about it. So it's certainly a risk. It's certainly something I'm monitoring and broadly higher inflation and slowing growth through this year and into 2023. I do think that that's what we're going to experience. And in real Really practical terms, if we hit a stagflationary period, the economy slows but prices stay high, I presume you'd see people losing their jobs, you know, there'd be a lot of disruption? 
It's certainly a possibility. I think they, what's going to be really challenging uh, for all central banks globally over the next sort of 12, 24 months is uh, they have to thread a bit of a needle of trying to slow uh, that momentum down, cool their economies. Um, and it's more challenging for some countries than others. The US is, is much more difficult. Their inflation rates are much higher. So the, the task for the Federal Reserve is, is that much larger. But they're trying to cool things down, dampen down those inflationary pressures. But at the same time, they don't want to cool things down too much and have economies go backwards. And as you say, that may result in job losses and things. So it's, it's a really difficult sort of period to navigate through where you're sort of walking a bit of a tightrope. And, and that's the challenge for the RBA and other central banks going forward. It is possible that they go too hard um, and we do end up in that, you know, going backwards scenario. And, and in that case, yes, you know, in, uh, rising unemployment rate is, is definitely a possibility. The fact that this is such a globalised experience is really different to the experience of the 1970s when stagflation was a a bit of a thing, isn't it? So, so stagflation, yes, in the 1970s, it appeared in, in a number of countries, but it, it took a lot longer to play through. And I think that's actually one of the differences we're likely to see through this period compared to then. It was very much an issue and a challenge um, in the UK and Europe in the 70s. And then, as you say, um, in other countries, it came through later. In, in the US, it was a bit later. And, and it was the early 80s, really, when the Federal Reserve sort of <laughs> took it on and, and in Australia later again. Right now, it, it is all happening at the same time. And I think what's important and an important difference from that period in the 70s and 80s is that the way central banks operate today is quite different. Inflation targeting didn't exist until the 1990s as a, as a way of conducting monetary policy. So central bankers weren't responding in the same way then as they, they will do now. And in particular, they're responding much more quickly now. So I think when we look back in time, if we look forward five or even 10 years from now, we'll look at this period and say, well, they, they went a bit quicker and hopefully it didn't become as entrenched. But it, there, are, there are parallels and it's important as the economists as a central banker that we look at that time and learn the lessons from it. And um, hopefully we all have, and uh, it's not as challenging a transition. Yes, because your dad has told you stories about what that time was like in the UK. Um, It's a time we surely don't want to repeat. Yeah, so, and I should stress, this is not the environment we're in right now. Inflation rates in the UK in the 70s, which is where their period of stagflation was, much, much higher, well above 20% growth in prices year on year. So really, really strong. But um, I've been talking to him recently and he was telling me there was a period of time when that inflation was really fast, where he would get his monthly paycheck and he would actively look to spend it. Uh, There was no point saving it because the value of the money he'd been paid would go down uh, month to month to month noticeably and, and he would be able to buy less with it. So uh, that is, from a UK perspective, uh, what stagflation looks like. And, and obviously, that's, I say, very different to where we are right now. But uh, it's just interesting to think that that's what uh, that kind of environment can be like. Uh, and obviously, we absolutely want to try and avoid that. Um, and the central bankers are already taking the right steps. And clearly, in the UK in the 70s, they were much, much slower to respond. A tiny bit of crossing fingers as well as being better informed <laughs> on how to approach policy. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Sarah Hunter is a senior economist and partner at KPMG. So lots of talk about fuel and food price inflation, but the costs of healthcare have also been rising dramatically for some years. Out-of-pocket costs at doctors and specialists are up, and so is private health insurance. We know that people are foregoing healthcare now because They've got to buy food, they've got to buy petrol, they've got to pay their rent. And while we've spent much of the last two years thinking about health, thanks to the pandemic, 
you wouldn't say it's dominated as an election issue. Health is a hard nut to crack, I think. And I think during the last election, all the Medi-Scare campaigns and things kind of put the parties off, really making it a big issue this time around. Professor Anthony Scott is a health economist at the University of Melbourne. It's a continuing thing. Although we've had recent you know, increases in the cost of living, the last inflation figures, you know, housing costs are going up, cost of fuel and that kind of thing. These are kind of blips, <laughs> which 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 will go away in, in one sense. But healthcare costs have been rising consistently and at a much higher level for a long time. And uh, it, it's a big issue. You know, I, th- I think health costs have always risen one or two percent ab- above the CPI. And Within that, pharmaceutical costs are growing the lowest at about 1%. The highest are medical costs, which is out-of-pocket costs for doctor's services, as well as private health insurance premiums and things like that. So, so it's those medical costs which see the biggest growth, and that includes you know, GP services, but also specialist services are growing faster than the, the GP services costs. So, so when you book to see a specialist, what rules currently exist about how much they should tell you about what it might cost? Because there can be a lot of surprises, can't there? Yeah, I mean, there aren't any hard and fast rules. There aren't any mandates. A lot of the colleges, college of surgeons, and other things like that, they do strongly encourage, it's in their code of practice, that you know patients should receive informed financial consent before they agree to anything. But that's not at the point that you ring up. That's at the point where you've already talked to the doctor, you, you need the hip operation, and then to tell you how much it is. So at that point, it's very hard for you to back out and, and or negotiate. Um Whereas I think what should be happening is when you ring up a receptionist, they should already have an idea of what the broad out-of-pocket cost might be. They should give you an upfront quote so that then you can come off the phone and then ring up somebody else to see if they can do a better deal and there may be better quality as well. So, you know, I think the way that these healthcare costs are communicated, and it is very complicated. It's not just like going to buy petrol or something where you can look at different garages and see what the petrol prices are. Every doctor provides very complex services and to price those services in advance is, is quite a difficult thing to do. But I think doctors should be given support to do that in order to kind of give these upfront quotes to patients. And then patients just have a bit more information because it's, if, if you're in a consultation about, you know, say you've just found out you've had cancer, you don't want to start talking about costs yeah. to the doctor and trying to negotiate. People just don't do that. No. And, and therefore... Um, it's, it's difficult for patients. And the prospect of having to shop around at that point, I mean, is just unthinkable. That's right. You, mm. you, you want to get treated as quickly as possible and you haven't got time to shop around and really you, you'll do anything, really. A lot of people will do anything to, to get the treatment that they need, including borrowing money off friends, increasing their mortgage, whatever they might do. But they shouldn't have to do that. So let's just stick for a moment with the complexity of this, because I'm sure a lot of surgeons and and their representative bodies will say exactly what you've said. It's really complicated. You can't expect us to give a a list to the receptionist and and there you go. But you think that's fixable? Look, the data is there to do this. Um, You know, the the Department of Health collects all this data by doctor about their out-of-pocket costs, all the private health insurance companies report all this data, the Department of Health as well. So the data is there. And I think there needs to be much more effort and funding put into this. I mean, the Department of Health have a price transparency website called Medical Cost Finder. Some of the health insurers have these websites as well. You can go on and find out how much your hip replacement costs in your particular area. But the Department of Health website, it's not by doctor at the moment, it's just by a broad area level. Hmm. I think just a lot more effort could be put into trying to generate these upfront quotes. It is complicated and it, and it will require a lot of support. Doctors can't be expected to do it by themselves. 
and patients can't expect it to be to, to ask about it and negotiate. And in terms of what we have heard on this election during this election campaign from both the government and the opposition, the main thing has been plans to cut the costs of medicines. I mean, is that going to help with yeah. the cost of living issues? Look, I think it will. That's a, that's a kind of smart policy because it affects everybody a little bit, but it affects a lot of people. <laughs> so, you know, politically, it's it's a good thing. But costs of the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and prescribing have been growing the, the, at the lowest rate, about 1%. It's specialist costs, which are up at, at 4 4 5%. So although it, it will have a very positive impact, in my view, it's not where the real issues lie. And how many Australians are delaying or missing out on treatments because of high costs? You mentioned those who might, you know, up the mortgage or borrow some money, but how many are actually missing out? Look, I think that the data that's around suggests it's around 10% of people who might skip consultations and, and or skip a prescription or or that kind of thing. Um, it's much higher for, for people with chronic conditions who obviously have regular prescriptions and regular visits to the doctor. A recent Consumer Health Forum survey found that about 30% of people with chronic conditions were not confident they could afford needed health care if they became really ill, and about 14% couldn't pay for healthcare or medicine because of a shortage of money. So that these are people with chronic conditions. And that's, you know, if people aren't accessing healthcare, they're going to be sicker, they're less likely to work, less likely to to participate socially and, and society. And and you know, it's it's you know, so so these these people are kind of hurting. And in the long run, costing the system more, presumably. Well that's right. Their conditions get worse and, and they enter the system through emergency departments, which which is another um conversation. Mm, yes indeed. So is it possible to fix all of these things piecemeal, a bit at a time, or is this a more strategic rethink that's required, something maybe comparable to even the introduction of Medicare itself, you know, a big reform? Is that what we're really looking at? Um, there's always been tinkering with a complex system, and this tinkering sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Because of the complexities, it's often unintended consequences. I mean, it, it's difficult because the way healthcare in this country is set up, there's constitutional protections for, for doctors and their fee setting. The way Medicare is set up, that's set up to subsidise patients, not to pay doctors. So again, th- this is you know legislation which which would require major reform. And I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of people are kind of happy with healthcare because we have a high rate of private health insurance. A lot of people can skip public hospital queues, but there's still that group of low-income people on public hospital waiting lists who are just left to kind of languish and. To be honest, you know, nobody really seems to care too much about them. Big equity issue, though, isn't it? It is, it is. If you want fast care, you've got to pay for it. And there is evidence suggesting that specialist consultations for paediatrics, for, for kind of child health conditions, um, richer people get more access to those healthcare consultations than, than, than poorer people generally. So it, it is a big issue. Health economist Professor Anthony Scott. And if you want more on the election campaign, you can check out the ABC's Australia Votes podcast. Well, a political and social earthquake struck the United States this week. A rare leak from the Supreme Court confirms that it's on course to overturn a half century old precedent enshrining the right to abortion. week ago, I thought I, I might be pregnant and I didn't know what to do and I'm not. But to hear this 
a moment later, I was terrified. The court is expected to make a decision by the end of June as part of a case brought by Mississippi to ban most terminations after 15 weeks. But a secret draft ruling written by one of the judges, obtained and published by the media outlet Politico, indicates that five of the nine judges on the Supreme Court bench would vote to strike down the abortion precedent known as Roe versus Wade. This will fall on the young women who have been abused, who are victims of incest. This will fall on those who have been raped. This will fall on mothers who are already struggling to work three jobs to be able to support the children they have. The leak itself was a shock, coming from a usually watertight court, but it's what's in the draft itself, the justifications for the likely ruling, that's astonished civil rights advocates and legal scholars. Well, Professor Barbara McQuaid is the former US attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She's now at the University of Michigan. Before Roe versus Wade, there were many states that banned abortion entirely. And so for women in those states, they would either have to travel out of state if they could afford to do that, or they were forced to carry a, a pregnancy to term. Or what often happened was that abortions would be done, they would just be done uh, in back alleys, not by real medical professionals. And it led to uh, something like 4,000 emergency room visits in Cook County, Illinois alone because of botched uh, back alley abortions that led to dangerous infections and injuries. So the lack of a right to abortion didn't stop abortions. It just created a very unsafe situation for women. That's right. It didn't stop abortions. It only stopped safe and legal abortions, Mm. which is what I fear we will return to. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, is it inevitable that if if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that that's what you'll come back to? I think so. Certainly in some states, there are a number of states that have expressed hostility to abortion rights. There are 13 states that have what are known as trigger laws, which say the instant Roe versus Wade is overturned, this statute will take effect and it will ban abortion. There are also a number of states, about a dozen of them, that have a different kind of law that are now being referred to as zombie laws because they are coming back from the dead. These are laws that pre-existed Roe in 1973 that made it a crime to perform an abortion. And so if Roe is overturned, those laws would spring back to life, making it illegal to obtain an abortion in about 25 states. Mm. And I see that some states are actually enacting, trying to enact new legislation. Louisiana legislators are moving to declare abortion homicide. Some states, though, are pledging to be safe havens in the event Roe v. Wade is overturned. Can they do that? Yes. So, you know, each state will be on its own to decide how they want to handle abortions. And there are some states where their state constitution enshrines the right to an abortion. So those states will, uh, abortion rights will be protected. And I imagine there will be women who travel to those states to obtain abortions if they can afford to. So let's talk a bit more about this draft. It is just a draft. So what's the process that's likely to happen now among the justices? Could some of them change their minds on this? Yeah. So super interesting dynamic. You know, this has no no weight whatsoever. It's just an early draft. And what happens at the Supreme Court is when they hear oral argument, they immediately go back and have a conference where they discuss their votes. 
And in this instance, it appears that five justices, the majority, favored striking down Roe. And so Justice Alito was assigned to draft that majority opinion. And that's what this is. But what happens next is that draft opinion gets circulated among all of the justices, and some may suggest language. There is some reporting to suggest that Chief Justice Roberts has an alternative version going of abortion rights that would be not absolute, but states would not be able to restrict abortion rights at 15 weeks. So not overturning Roe, just scaling it back from 24 weeks to 15 In a normal process, you could imagine some horse trading going on. But now that this draft opinion is out there in the public domain, I think one worry that Chief Justice Roberts has expressed is that it undermines the legitimacy of the court and does have um, a potential influencing effect. It could very well be that some justices now feel locked into their votes and are less likely to change because of the perception that they're simply caving into public pressure. Well, if we if we assume that this hardens the position and Justice Alito's uh, language, that draft, uh, goes forward and is is enshrined, what are some of the other implications here? Because there's been a lot of discussion about um, implications beyond abortion and reproductive rights. Yes. The Roe versus Wade case recognised this idea that there is a right to privacy in uh, the U.S. Constitution. One of the things that this draft opinion says is that because the word abortion is not in the Constitution, there is therefore no constitutional right. But of course, what the court has long held is that you have to interpret parts of the Constitution in context of other parts of the Constitution. There's also a Ninth Amendment right that says rights that are not enumerated are retained by individuals. Rights that are not delegated to Congress are retained by the states. And so you have to read those things in, in addition to those enumerated rights. And based on that, uh, what the court found in Roe, as well as cases involving a right to contraception, a right to interracial marriage, a right to same-sex marriage, is that there is this idea of substantive due process, that there are some rights that are just so fundamental that they need not be articulated in the Constitution. And one of those is this right to privacy. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned because the word abortion does not appear in the Constitution, then really all of these other rights based on this idea of a fundamental right to privacy are also in jeopardy. That's enormous, Bob, isn't it? It really is, um, because I think that there are so many things that we presume that we have rights to. And I also think it's either ignoring centuries of legal precedent, or it is just deliberately cherry-picking abortion on this issue. I mean, things like the presumption of innocence, the right to vote, executive privilege, qualified immunity, these are all things ensconced in constitutional law in the United States, and none of them are specifically mentioned in the language of the Constitution. Where does this leave the United States as a country based on the rule of law if its Supreme Court, its highest court, can throw the country into that kind of a mess? I, I worry about the legitimacy of the court. You know, at the oral argument in this case, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said words to the effect of, it's hard to see how this court endures the stench of the perception that reading the Constitution is nothing more than a political act. 
And so if the court is so undermined and so lacking in legitimacy, because its popularity has been falling, hasn't it, in recent years, who fixes that? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's an important question, and I don't know the answer. But I think you're right. You know, one of the unique things about the United States is that we are a country, like Australia, of lots of different people from different walks of life, immigrants from all over the world, people with very different views on different issues. But the one thing that has always united us is this abiding faith in the rule of law, that we are going to disagree about many, many things, but that we agree to resolve our differences in the courts. And people have accepted that. But I think that if courts are perceived as just one more instrument of politics, then they lose their legitimacy and people will be less inclined to follow the law if they don't believe that the courts are legitimate. So there's politics here too. The midterms are coming up. There's active campaigning. President Biden, who as a Catholic was not in the past an abortion supporter, but he's vowed to protect this right. Democrats want to legislate it federally. Um, is, is that possible? Yes, I think this actually creates an interesting political opportunity for Democrats. Now, I'm sure it's one they would not wish for, but the right to an abortion is actually very popular in the United States, even for those like me. I'm a devout Christian. I don't personally uh, want to get an abortion, but I certainly strongly defend everybody's right to make that choice for themselves. And so I think uh, the majority of the population has that view. And so I think this could be politically very advantageous for electing Democrats into the House of Representatives during these midterm elections or into the U.S. Senate. So, Bob, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, is, is it now, do you think, inevitable that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned and that women in the United States are going to find, many are going to find themselves in very precarious situations? I do. You know, until this leaked draft, I did harbour some hope that the Justice Roberts opinion would prevail, and that is cutting back on Roe versus Wade to 15 weeks, but still leaving Roe versus Wade intact. But seeing this draft, it's hard to believe that uh, any of these five votes are going to change their views. And so it seems very likely that Roe versus Wade will end and that at the very least, there will be certain states where abortions are illegal. And then, you know, I think there will be a lot of lawsuits challenging things. And I think we'll, we'll have a lot of chaos in the next 10 to 15 years as some of this shakes out. But no doubt there will be a woman somewhere who dies from a botched abortion and another who's forced to give birth against her will because of this decision. Professor Barbara McQuaid from the University of Michigan. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Emily Burke, Will Ockenden and me, Linda Mottram. Have a good weekend.